0: Last week, we covered uh, Romans uh, chapter 5, specifically verses 1 through 11, and we looked at, uh, very specifically, the benefits of the doctrine of justification. And uh, if you missed it, uh, I can sum up a 45-minute message in about 10 seconds. The benefit... Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, why don't you just do that every week? (laughs) I don't really have a good answer for that, so I'll just move on. The benefits of... Uh, the justification, and justification means that we have been declared righteous. God has declared each of us to be righteous because of Jesus. And so the benefit is we have peace with God, uh, we have access to God, and we have the love of God. So those were the three benefits that we looked at in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Now this morning we're looking at, Paul continues really looking at Continued benefits of justification, but he introduces to us a new doctrine, as it were, uh, called the doctrine of imputation. Uh, Now, before I unpack what the doctrine of imputation means, I wanted to ask a question. Before I explain it, here's the question. Uh, We've all inherited something from our parents, okay? Some of you, it's just your charm. Some of it's your good looks, Uh, Some of it is just weird personality quirks and habits. So our parents, whether we like it or not, all of us have inherited something from mom and dad. So what is it that you personally have inherited? It's one of those things that it's unexplainable to you just by, except by saying, I got it from my mom, or that's just absolutely, that's totally my dad. I can't control it. I have nothing to say about it. It's just... It's because of my parents. Now, we can't blame our parents for everything, um, but we have inherited things from our parents. So what is it you've inherited from your parents? I know for me, uh, I know I don't look. I look pretty tough, I realize. I get that. Um, But I'm a pretty emotional guy, okay? In about 12 years of being married, it's safe to say I've cried twice as much as Kyla. I'm cool to admit that. But every time I get emotional... Now, I'm not like weeping like a baby. I just get choked up, you know, seeing Toy Story 3. How could you not cry at that film? (laughs) Every time I get that emotional, that thing that's kind of right here and it just comes up and you start to tear up, I'm like, oh, mom. (laughs) So my mom has got the sweetest, just greatest heart, but she's an emotional woman. Every time I talk to her on the phone... It's, it's not a conversation unless she's cried once. <laughs> my dad has, I've inherited from my dad uh, a very receding hairline, and in about a year or two, it's just going to be bald, so I've accepted that. Uh, but the thing outside of a hairline uh, that I've received from my dad, inherited from my dad, is a personality. My dad is phenomenal at working a room. So when sometimes if you walk into a room like this and there's, I don't know, a hundred some odd people here, you might get overwhelmed and be like, oh my goodness, I I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I'm just going to go find a chair and sit down and not look and hopefully no one will talk to me. That's not my dad. My dad's goal is to engage, interact, converse with every single person uh, in the room. He's just got such a heart. He wants to know everyone. When I walk into a room, whether it's 100 people, 1,000 people, I'm like my father. I just want to shake as many hands as I possibly can, know as many people, know as many names. I just want to engage. So we've all inherited something from our parents, okay? Something. You have, I've got emotions, I've got a receding hairline, and I've got a personality that I give thanks to my parents for. Now, back to the question of what is the doctrine of imputation? Well, simply it's this. Something is transferred to us. We receive something from someone else because of something that they did. Meaning something that someone else did has a tremendous impact on you, has a tremendous impact on me. Now, today, specifically in Romans chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 12, uh, we're looking at the difference between Paul is going to talk about uh, the man Adam, the very first man, and then the God-man, Jesus. So he's going to compare and contrast the differences between Adam, the very first man, and Jesus, the God-man. Now, it's a fair question to ask, but why is it fair? I'll just start with this one right away. Why is it fair that someone does something and it has an impact on me? It just doesn't seem fair. That something that happened specifically with Adam thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago why should that have any impact or bearing on my life? It just doesn't seem fair. It's a good question, it's a fair question. Uh, This is much of what the doctrine of imputation is about. Something that Adam decided had an impact on all of us, all of humanity. Now, before I get tangled up in, is it, do we really wanna talk about, is it fair? I just wanna ask the question, or maybe more so, make the statement. If we don't like this, that what someone did has an impact on me, and we just say, you know what, I'm throwing that out. I think that's terrible doctrine. I don't think the Bible actually teaches that. I don't believe in it. Then we've got a huge problem because our justification is dependent on the doctrine of imputation, meaning the only reason that any of us could ever be declared righteous in God's sight is because of something that Jesus did had an impact on me. So I can't throw away, I can't take just part of imputation and be like, oh, I like the positive aspect of imputation, but I don't like the negative aspect. So we're going to get into this uh, a little bit more, but this is uh, R.C. Sproul. This is what he had to say about the doctrine of imputation. He said, just as one man's offense and sin were reckoned to the entire human race, so another man's righteousness in a similar manner was imputed To all who believe. Something Adam did, he sinned, had an impact on the entire human race. But imputation also says something that Jesus did, he was sinless, completely obedient, had an impact on us as well. He goes on to say, if you do not have justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. Meaning, if the gospel is really based on our works, it's not really good news because it doesn't end well our life uh, trying to earn God, we can't do enough to earn God's favor. He goes on, if you do not have justification by faith alone, you do not have the gospel. And if you do not have imputation, you do not have justification by faith alone. I'm doing a really long introduction to make a, a big point here that I really want us to understand the significance, the value, the meaning of this doctrine of imputation. Something Adam did wrecked us. Something Jesus did rescued us. That's how you could sum up this doctrine of imputation. Paul says it like this in Romans 5, uh, starting at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death... So if you ever wonder where sin came from, we're reading about it right now. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sin. He goes on, verse 13, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a commandment, as did Adam, who was the pattern of the one to come. Now, You might read that, and these are some pretty challenging three verses in Paul's letter to the Romans, and he's introducing to them uh, the doctrine of imputation. He's making very clear to his community and ultimately to us, something that Adam did had a tremendous impact. Ultimately, it devastated humanity. What Adam decided to do in the garden devastated forever the rest of humanity. So it says... Through Adam, who was disobedient, meaning he rebelled against God, sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, it contaminated all of creation, including the created, meaning you and I. just want you to sit with that for a second, because I think one of the questions, how is that possible? Why is that fair? Something that Adam did impacted us. Now, one of the things that I want us to catch about sin is as soon as sin entered the world, the consequence for sin followed. And the consequence of sin was death. And what the Bible teaches about death, by the way, is it's twofold. There's a physical death, Adam and Eve would have lived forever in the garden with God if they had not chosen to sin. So there's a physical consequence, there's death, But then there's also a spiritual consequence. They were kicked out of the garden. Can you imagine having perfect fellowship with God? Walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the Bible describes in Genesis 3. That's the kind of relationship that they had with God. And they were kicked out. They were separated from God. Now, a few things to remember about sin. Sin is not just a blemish on our exterior. It's not like a pimple I can pop and it's gone. Okay? Okay. Sin is not just something I can like, well, I just need to stop that bad habit of mine, and therefore I'll be done with sin. What the Bible teaches about sin is it actually corrupts the entire, the totality of who we are, our core. I like how Charles Spurgeon actually said it. Uh, As the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. Sin has just penetrated not just our exterior, but the core, heart and soul of who we are. The second thing about sin is, if you can remember this, sin never travels alone. Sin is never isolated. I mean, there's always consequences when there's sin. And the consequence of Adam's sin was that it brought death, both physically and spiritually. Uh, Genesis chapter two, going back, is God told him very clear, Adam, if you do this, there will be death. The consequences of disobedience is death. This is Genesis 2.17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. That's pretty clear. It's a simple command. If you, you can have everything else, but if you eat of that tree, Adam, the consequence is death. Um, and then the third aspect about sin is the first one is it's not just a blemish on our exterior. Second one is not just travels alone. It's got a traveling partner and consequences, specifically death. And then the third one is sin never just impacts one person. I think sometimes we can consider this is just my sin. It's my personal thing. No one knows about it. That's a lie. All of sin impacts not only the person who's living with that sin, but it impacts people around them. That's why Paul says uh, in verse 12, and in this way, because of Adam's sin in this way, it had an impact, it contaminated, corrupted, devastated the rest of humanity. Adam chose the path for all of us. You might not like that, but this is what scripture is teaching, is that Adam chose the path for all of humanity but the sad reality is all of humanity has continued in Adam's footsteps. Meaning Adam made that initial decision, but we continue making that same decision that he did. Now, this is a little bit of a side note, but one of the cool things, uh, and that's a terrible way to describe this, but one of the phenomenal things about heaven, okay? One of the phenomenal truths, realities about heaven is this, is that the curse of sin is reversed. We will never be able to sin and we will never be able to die. That's not our reality now. We live in sin and we live with the consequences of sin. But in heaven, that's flip-flopped, that's reversed. It will not be possible for us to sin and it will not be possible for us to die. Now go back to the question I asked a while ago. How is this fair? How is it fair that Adam chose my fate? I'm doomed. I'm separated from God. I became a sinner because of something that Adam did. Again, I'm not avoiding this question, but it's a very interesting question because it at least gets me to start thinking about, what if it was you? Okay, If you were in the garden, what would you have done? Now, I know we like to think well of ourselves and be like, I would have like walked away and not, I, would have had, I would never have even thought about it. We like to think that if we were in Adam's shoes, probably barefoot, but if we were in Adam's place in the garden, we would not have made the decision that he did. But the reality is, if it was me, and you might not like this, but if it was you, you would have done the exact same thing Adam did. Now, you might say, well, Michael, you don't know me. That's not fair. You can't say that. Well, I can say with confidence, if it was any of us, we would have done the exact same thing because we do that same thing every single day. We know the devastation and the consequences and the separation that sin brings, but yet we still continue to sin. I don't know exactly what Adam knew except that there would be death but Adam made a decision that impacted us. We know what sin does to us, to our relationship, God, to our relationships with each other, and yet we still sin. Doctrine of imputation, Adam did, made a choice. His choice impacted all of us. Sin came to the rest of the world, meaning you and I, and because of that, death came to all men. Now, Think of it this way, this is not a perfect analogy, but it's pretty close, okay? I'm not making any statements on President Obama, so don't get all hung up on his name alone. But the reality is he's a president of our country. If you are an American citizen, that man, good or bad, he represents all of us. I'm an American citizen, so he is our president. He represents me in everything. So the decisions, the choices, the actions, what he does, good or bad, has an impact on me. That's a small scale, but that's at least a helpful picture, I hope, of this, the idea of the doctrine of imputation, that one represents the many. Now, I've already asked this question now. It's my third time asking this question, why is it fair? Okay, we get hung up on the fair question, so Why is it fair that something someone else did could devastate me, could condemn me? And I think what Paul is teaching here is death and sin, or sin and death, came into the world through Adam. But I am not condemned, meaning I am not separated from God because Adam sinned. I'm separated from God because I have sinned. So I can't look and be like, well, it's all Adam's fault. I can't have, I can't look to him and blame him. I will have to stand before God and say, no, I am a sinner who sinned. So sin comes to the world through Adam and thus death, but the consequence or I'm not condemned because of that. I'm condemned because I'm a sinner who sins. I think a good question is, why did he do it? Do you ever ask yourself that question? About Adam, at least, he's got a perfect relationship with God. Why, if you have a perfect, unhindered, uninterrupted relationship with God, why on earth would he decide to rebel against God? Now, this is purely speculation, but I think it's pretty good speculation. My only answer to the question is how I answer the question for myself why do I sin? Why do you sin? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do I sin? I think the answer is just as simple as we we are people who are bent on doing our own thing, going our own way. We want to be our own God. We want to be in control of us with not having anyone else tell us what to do, when to do it, how to do it. That was really the sin of the garden is Adam, Eve, they just wanted to do their own thing. God said something and they rebelled against it. Why did they do it? The same reason we do it. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. Martin Luther said this about sin. He said, sin is essentially a departure from God. Every time I sin, every time I make the decision, the choice to sin, I'm departing from God and I'm entering into my own thing. I'm going my way. Own way. Now, it's pretty bad news, actually, horrific news, if it stopped there. If it just stops here that what Adam did impacted me in such a profound way, that would be horrific news. But what now Paul introduces us to in these next few verses is the gospel. It's the benefit of imputation. He starts in verse 15 of chapter 5. And count, if you will, just to yourself. I'll give you a hint there's seven. Um, how many times you see the word gift and grace, and they're interchangeable words here in the original language. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Verse 16, again, the gift of God... It's not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment, uh, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. I'm at verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. It's a lot of verses right there, uh, but did you catch the language, seven times actually, of gift and grace? The horrific news, Adam chose poorly and it impacted, devastated all of humanity. But Paul now introduces and said, but there's a gift, there's grace that came to all man, all men through one man. Paul is comparing and contrasting Adam and Jesus. Adam's one act of disobedience brings judgment. Jesus' one act of righteousness brings justification. Remember, justification, we can be declared righteous as if we had never sinned because of Jesus. Adam brings condemnation, brings judgment, condemnation. Uh, Jesus' one act of obedience or righteousness brings justification. Uh, in one of the uh, books I was reading this week, uh, this—he's uh, a scholar. His last name is uh, C.E.B. Cranfield, and I just thought this was such a brilliant way to understand the difference between what Adam had done and its impact, and what Jesus had done. And he says this: the one single misdeed should be answered by judgment. This is perfectly understandable. Say that again: one single misdeed should be answered by judgment this is perfectly understandable. That the accumulated sins and guilt of all ages should be answered by God's free gift, this is the miracle of miracles utterly beyond human comprehension. One single misdeed, it makes sense, that should be judged. It does not make sense that one act of obedience, one act of righteousness should cover Millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of sins. This is the gospel. This is the miracle of miracles that what Jesus did, his perfect sinless life to those who receive and believe in Jesus, are considered justified or declared righteous. That is the, that's the gospel. Isn't that amazing? It makes sense. Adam was judged. We're in that same sin, but one man, what he did has an impact on millions and millions in forgiveness and grace. Another author that uh, I quote a lot, Jerry Bridges, uh, said this, because we are united by faith to Jesus Christ who is perfectly righteous, God accepts us as perfectly righteous. God does not resort to some kind of legal fiction calling something righteous that is not. Rather, he declares us righteous on the basis of the real accomplished righteousness of Christ, imputed to us because of our union with him. This is amazing. The doctrine of imputation, what Jesus did, I get. I can receive the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to me by grace through faith. Okay, if you've received God's abundant provision of grace. That's what Paul called it. God's abundant provision of grace, the gift of righteousness. Practically speaking, what does that really look like for you in your life? If I'm the man, the woman, who's received God's abundant gift of grace, the righteousness of Jesus, what does that practically speaking look like for me tomorrow when I wake up? What does that look like for me on Wednesday afternoon? And this is what Paul says. He says, we will reign in life through Jesus. Now, I'm guessing some of you are like, okay, a little bit more on the practical, like, what does that mean? What does it mean that we can reign in life through Jesus? John Piper, good guy to quote, said this, grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned, bless you, Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. I want you to catch that. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. It's not just about forgiveness. With grace, there's power. He goes on to say, grace is power, not just pardon. So when it says to reign in life, means God has given us his grace so that we do not live under the reign of sin anymore. Make this real simple. We do not have to sin once we've received the righteousness of Christ. Now, the reality is we continue to sin. So why do we continue to sin if I've received the righteousness of Christ? Grace says pretty clear, it's not just pardon. It's not just forgiveness of sin. There is power in the grace of God when I'm making willful decisions to sin, to rebel, to do my own thing, go my own way, I've removed myself from the grace that God has given me not to make those decisions to rebel, to sin, to do my own thing, to go my own way. Paul goes on in the next few verses in Romans uh, chapter five, verse 18 and 19, and I'm still wrestling with this question of, if I have the power over sin, I reign with Jesus in life, it's not sin reigning over me, then why do I continue to sin? And Paul reiterates again this doctrine of imputation, verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of the one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, So also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. Paul's clearly here repeating himself. And so anytime Paul or any biblical author repeats himself, it's a good point in time to pay attention of why is he saying it again? Sin of Adam brought condemnation. The righteousness or the sinlessness of Jesus brings righteousness for those who believe. The very essence of, of the gospel, the good news, the gospel message is that what Jesus did is given to me. And I don't have to work for it. I can't earn it. I can openly say thank you and receive what Jesus has done as counts for me. He goes on in the last, very two last verses in Romans uh, chapter five, he says this, the law, this is where it gets a little you think it's been a little bit tricky, it gets a little trickier. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. Catch that again. The law, meaning God's commandments, was added so that the trespass might increase. Trespasses mean sin. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And then verse 21. Says this, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One would think, it's not much of a stretch, that God wouldn't want us sinning. But verse 20 says that uh, the law was added so that trespass or sin might increase. So, what is Paul saying of when he's saying that the law was added so that sin might increase. Is this God's way of saying, no, go ahead, keep sinning more. That's why I'm giving you more commandments and more laws. Practically, when someone tells you not to do something, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to do the very thing that they just told you not to do. If I told everyone not to look out that window right now because of that guy, what is the first thing that all of you want to go do? You all want to look out the window. Why? There is no guy out the window, by the way. (laughs) Just trying to trick you. When God tells us something in a command that we are not to do, the first thing that we want to do is to do that very thing. I'll give you three reasons, and there'll be memorable reasons of why we do that. The first one is this, we don't like being told what we can or can't do. That's number one. Number two is, we don't like being told what we can or can't do. And number three, we don't like being told what we can or can't do. (laughs) Interesting place for an amen, yes. (laughs) When someone lays down a rule or a restriction... Okay, this is not just for infants and kids. This is our adult behavior does the exact same thing. When someone lays down a rule or a restriction, we typically respond of, how can I break that rule? Or how far can I go before I officially break the rule? Like, how far can I get? If I'm not supposed to jump off this stage, how far can I get before I've crossed the line? Or we just think, I'm going to do it anyway, so how can I cover up my tracks so that no one will know that I've actually broken that rule or restriction? The reality about laws or rules or commands is that it does not make a man a sinner. It actually provokes sinners to sin even more. This is what God's command. The law, this is exactly what happened. When it talks about sin increasing more, as soon as we know That there's a law, a rule, a restriction, a command, our sinful nature is like, no, that's not for me. That applies to them. I can do my own thing. Isn't it amazing that as soon as we're told not to do something, that becomes the most attractive thing that we can do? You see this with kids, but you also see it in our own lives. As soon as we hear it, that's the most attractive thing, and I want to do it. Even if I know it's going to hurt me, hurt someone else, Because someone told me not to do it, that's the best, probably the greatest thing I can do. And why do we do that? I think we do that because we think we're missing out on something if we don't do that. This is the sin of the garden. They thought God was holding out on them. And so they said, no, we're going to get our own. And this is reality of sin. No, that's command. That's a restriction that's holding me back from pursuing my best or achieving the best for me. So when Paul says that the command, the law was given so that sin might increase, God did not give us the law so that we'd have more things to sin against. He gave us the law just to reveal to us how sinful we actually are. And when you start to get, you start to understand just how sinful we are, that's when we turn and say, I need a Savior. And this is the beautiful message of the gospel As sin increased, guess what also increased? Grace. That's what verse 21 uh, or verse 20 uh, said. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So as sin is moving, grace is ahead of it. Grace wins. Grace is more powerful. Now, I think this is a good question. Why is grace greater than grace? sin. To quote John Calvin again, he said this, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. I'm answering the question, why is grace greater? Condemnation came as a result of Adam's sin. It brought death, separation from God. But what Jesus did in grace, it trumped all of that. We have forgiveness, we have justification, our righteousness, and we have a new relationship and a new home with God both now and forever in eternity. I think one of the things that's been helpful for me in understanding just grace and exactly what Jesus has done is I used to be under the impression that there were things that I was doing that God, it was just too big for God to forgive. Have you ever thought that? That, you know, this one sin... It's hidden, it's secret, no one knows about it. And certainly if God ever found out about it, he would never forgive. He would look at me and just backhand me all the way to eternal torment. That is not the message that Paul is proclaiming here. He's saying as sin increases, grace increases all the more. Let me just say it like this. There is no sin in your life today, tomorrow, next year that would ever be too big, or in your past, by the way, that is just too big for God to forgive. I've, I've met too many people whose their sin of the past is hindered and completely debilitated their walk with God today because they walk in this lie that what I did back then, it's just too big for God to forgive. I just want to tell you, God knew that, thought of that, and Jesus answered it. There's nothing that we could ever do where Jesus can't cover it. Where sin increases, you put whatever sin you want in there. Where sin increased, grace increased all the much more. This is the doctrine of imputation in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. What Adam did wrecked humanity. What Jesus did rescued humanity. And at the end of the day, this message was entitled, Life or Death. We have a choice to make. Will I choose life or will I remain in death, separated from God, still stuck in my sin, the sin imputed to me from Adam? There was Adam, his one choice. We know what it was. There was Jesus, perfect in humility, or perfect in obedience, perfect in righteousness. And because of Jesus, if we choose Jesus, if we put our faith, our hope, our trust, our life in him, there's life. Sin doesn't dominate me, and I don't stand condemned. I reign in life now and forever because of Jesus. Now, I'll finish with this. Last question The benefit of imputation, by the way, is I get everything of Jesus. (laughs) That's the benefit. Last week, I gave you three benefits of justification, peace with God, access to God, and the love of God. The one benefit of imputation, I get, you get, by faith, by grace, all of Jesus's righteousness. I don't get what Adam passed on to me. I get what Jesus gives me through faith. Last question is, how should this doctrine shape how I live my life day to day? It's a huge doctrine. It's a huge theological concept of imputation. And it should, just like justification, have a huge impact on how I live, how I decide, the actions, my choices. So how should it have an impact on the way I live. I'm just gonna give you really one, and it's this. We should be people, if you have received by faith the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you and declared justified, righteous, we should have a growing hatred for sin. That's what it should look like. This is how this doctrine should impact the way I live my life. I should just absolutely hate sin. Spurgeon said this about this very, very issue. If I had a brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if if I daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Just stop right there before you read the rest. What would you think of me if the guy who murdered my brother drove a dagger through his heart, if daily I was in relationship with this man, what would you think of me? Your thoughts probably would be like, what are you doing? He murdered your brother. How could you possibly spend time, laugh, engage, hang out with the man who put a dagger in your brother's heart? Spurgeon goes on to say, um, Surely, I too must be an accomplice in the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it anymore? If what Jesus did for me, and I've received that, how could I live in and love the thing that caused his death? I can't. This is what I mean when I say, how should the doctrine of imputation impact my life? I'm the man, you're the man, you're the woman who just, when sin invites, when sin tempts, your response is, heck no, how could I? How could I make that decision? Now, practically, how do you be the person who grows in actually hating sin? And here's just very two quick things. When sin comes, when sin invites, when sin tempts, and it will, it happens every day. It happens to all of us. So when it does happen, when you get that thought in your head, when you're in that conversation with that person, whoever it might be, when sin tempts, invites, is calling you to do something you know God's called you not to do, just look beyond the moment. Look beyond the moment to the devastation that that one decision Will cause. I often wonder about men who have committed adultery. And by the way, if you're here and that's something that you gave into and made a decision uh, to sin against God and sin against your wife, there is grace, there's forgiveness, there is redemption, and there's reconciliation because of the gospel. I want you to know that. But I wonder if in that very moment when they were deciding to go down that adulterous path, if they could look at how it would impact their wife, how it would impact their kids, how it would impact their kids' marriages, how it would impact their grandkids' marriages. If they could look to the third, second, third, fourth, fifth generation of what their one decision to disobey God and to, to dishonor the spouse, I wonder if they would still make it. If I could just look beyond the moment how that's going to devastate me, how it's going to devastate the people around me. That helps me to grow and say, you know what? It's not worth it. There's got to be a come a point where we look at sin and you say, you know what? It's not worth it. I've done that. I've been there. It's horrific. I'm living a new life. The second way is keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. I know that I say this a lot, but I love that right behind me is a huge old cross. I love that that is the centerpiece, the focal of our church. When you walk in that front door for the first time, you see a big old wooden cross. If I live my life with my eyes fixed on the cross, a cross-centered, a gospel-centered, a Christ-centered life, you know what? It just doesn't look as appealing. If I'm looking at Jesus, if I'm gazing on just how incredible, how awesome, how perfect, how holy, how good, how loving. How, I mean, if I'm just looking at Jesus, whatever that sin is, you know, it, it just it doesn't look as attractive as it used to. The, the reality of the doctrine of imputation played out in everyday life is just simply I'm the man or the woman who's just hating sin because I've been freed from it. I've been declared righteous in Jesus. And I grow in my hatred of sin by just looking beyond to see a consequence and keeping my eyes fixed on the cross. We're going to celebrate communion. We're going to worship. And uh, my heart and my hope for us today uh, is I just want to give you a few moments just to sit uh, and to be quiet and to respond to what God has just been speaking to you today. I realize that just even talking about sin, there's probably sins just flooding to your heart and mind. I just want you to not only deal with those, but confess those and repent of those. If you're a Christian who's received the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you, let your prayer be, dear God, please help me to have a holy hatred for sin. God, just help it to be so distasteful to the core of who I am. And if you are here today and you've yet to make a decision to become a Christian, wow, let today be the day that says, you know what? If this doctrine of imputation states that what Jesus did can be imputed to me, transferred, credited to me, I want that then receive Jesus Christ as your Savior over your sin. And you can receive him today. Just call out on his name. Jesus, I confess you to be God, and I receive your perfect sinless life as a substitute atonement for me. Spend some time praying, and as you are ready, and the worship band is, is leading us in more worship, come and celebrate communion today. And as you come, gaze upon the cross and say, Jesus, thank you, for what you've done. Thank you for the life that you have given me.